Well, good morning. It is almost 9.15, so we should get started. But I have to say, it is so good to see Brother Frank and Miss Pat delivered back to us safely. It is so good, and I look forward to hearing about that trip, because um, I'm sure the Lord did some amazing things on it, as he has the habit of doing. Let's just uh, let's pray real quick as we start. Uh, Lord, we just want to acknowledge how good you are, how loving, what a good father you are, how you're interested in growing us up into maturity, how you're interested in, in giving us responsibility, how you're interested in uh, guiding us and, and, and at times correcting us, um, all for our good. You are love and you are good all the time. And Lord, we uh, pray that uh, we will always see you in that light, that we will see your entire word as that revelation that was meant to bless us, meant to reveal who you are and how patient and loving you are. Uh, and yet that you hate sin, but you don't want to leave us in it. And so we ask that you'll help us to be wise as we read your word, wise to let the Spirit uh, guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been talking about the explicit issue of of poverty and, and uh, the last two or three weeks and essentially in one sense it boils down to, to, to who is poor, both how are they poor and how do we help them and then how much and in what way do we, do we help them best. So that's, that's been something that has been a struggle for us as a, as a body of believers. It's absolutely a struggle within the church. Uh, I'd almost ask for a show of hands in this. I don't, I don't know that I will, but you could almost ask the question, do you now, have you ever felt, or do you continually struggle with a measure of guilt as it relates to the poor? Because one of the things I think that, that is a very real issue for us is that we should feel a burden for the poor. It's very clear biblically. I gave you, I don't know how many pages that the poor in biblical context document was, but it's quite a number of pages. All the verses are written out, and it's obvious that we need to be feeling a burden for the poor. But what form does the burden, does the burden take I still call our attention to this, to this uh, statement, and I think it's a very true statement. It says, charity should extend equally to the deserving poor as well as to the undeserving poor. The deserving poor will be those who are repentant poor. They are people walking toward God, like we all are to be repentant people walking toward God. So they're moving toward God, not away from God. 
Uh, and that's the distinction here. Deserving poor versus undeserving poor. Uh, charity makes a distinction between them, but only in what is given, not in a willingness to give. The deserving poor receive, for example, gifts of money, gifts of clothing, food, and shelter. The undeserving poor receive accountability, a work ethic, and godly teaching. The gleaning laws of the Old Testament recognize this distinction plainly. The poor are defined as those who are without, and these different categories exist plainly. The poor define, uh, some are without Christ and are spiritually poor, while others are without food and are physically poor. Some in danger of starvation are absolutely poor, while others in the first world countries are relatively poor because they have an older car. Charity should be extended to all, but intelligent charity, wise charity, requires a knowledge of what it is they are going without. I think that's a really wise statement. That rings true to me biblically. We've talked about what one writer uh, and his work, I think, is, is exceptional. One writer is called Moral Proximity. You know, who is poor? How are they poor? How much are we called upon? And in what ways are we called upon to relieve? And this issue of moral proximity. What is our relationship with them? The closer our relationship is to the poor, the greater the call on us. Which also implies that we can't distance ourselves from the poor. I think it's clear. The Catholic writers use this term. It's a good term, but it's a big word. I'll get a ding. But it's called subsidiarity. And essentially what that means is, what that means is that the responsibility for relief resides closest to the need for the relief. And we talked about the concentric circles. We talked about the ultimate responsibility for someone who is unrighteously poor is to become self-responsible and work. And then we've got these concentric circles that get wider as we go out. As we go out, the moral proximity is reduced. So, biblically, the central element in poverty control is God-oriented living. That's obviously a call within the church, but if we remember that Israel is the Old Testament church and Israel has an evangelistic purpose to declare God's truth to all people by the principles that they live and the principles that they talk about. And that would pique the interest of other groups of people. And as a result... They would actually have, as Isaiah expects, nations flowing unto them, ultimately, when the righteous king takes his throne. In the, what I'd call, evangelical order of the Old Testament church, those blessings 
Those blessings of, that result from non-favoritism, that result from self-controlled sexuality with the resultant healthy families that result from that, uh, honor, and I don't mean that in a, this is something you don't need to think about, but honor of parents in the sense of taking care of your parents when they are unable to take care of themselves, which may have meant more in that culture than it does now, or may have meant something different. Probably in that culture it meant true financial aid. And it may mean less that now. But what, what we're challenged to give a lot of times to our parents is time and attention that they're needy for. And we do need to struggle with how that should work. Do we park them in a nursing home and, and leave them there? And go see them when we can. That's not to say it's not right, and I think it often is the right thing to do, to have focused care and attention available to them. The issue is, how, do we do that and check out? That's the, that's the equivalent in that context of writing a check and sending it off and saying, we've done, done what we need to do, which we've talked about is a disabling kind of thing uh, for us. So in the evangelical order of that Old Testament church, it seems like to me that the blessings were the blessings of God, related through the law, were for those attached to the kingdom of God or moving toward the kingdom of God. So they're there by either inheritance, they were blessed enough to be born into it, or they're there by choice, they came toward it. And we are going to talk about, even though we don't have much time, we are going to talk about immigration today. Um, That Jesus, of course, taught in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan essentially the idea and the responsibility to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. That wasn't a quote attached to that, but that was a quote that looked back at that, right? Now, there's where the problems arise. Ron Sider... Uh, who is a, I guess you'd say maybe a, an ethicist. Uh, Ron Sider has written what you'd call Jeremiads, which is, that's, a, that's like a writing in the style of Jeremiah, an accusatory writing. He wrote, uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Uh, and in that he said... Because we know of and have the ability to deliver aid to the poor anywhere around the world, we rich Americans have, individually and through the agency of government, the obligation to target all of our own means above subsistence, loosely defined. To send money as charitable aid in every instance we hear of it, everywhere in the world. 
I feel guilty reading it, and I'm not making fun of it. Well, and, and the question is, we, we, I think we have talked through the fact that that in that sense and in maybe in that way, the how here is not, is not the wise response. But the, the larger question is, is there a call on every spare penny? I mean, and where is that line? I mean, there's, I mean, people struggle in that guilt. And that's not to say we shouldn't have questions about it. It's not to say that we shouldn't have at one level a struggle. But I know people that are laid low in that struggle who are constantly in an almost depressed state worried about their standing before God. Now, that's a legalism in, in that, but we can't just blithely write that off and say we don't exactly know, even though we don't, and God's grace will have to take care of the edges. I still think that there is a need for us to think through that more explicitly. Personally, um, Cider's application of the story of Lazarus and the rich man. This is, a, this is his quote. The rich man merely neglected to help. His sin was one of omission, and it sent him to hell. Holy moly. That's, uh, that is, that's an accusatory... Thing. So, the question is, how can anyone, and particularly a Christian in America, feel about our wealth? We are wealthy. Our poor are wealthy in relative terms. There is virtually no one in this country who is poor by biblical definition that has not decided to be, and I'm talking about decided to be to the point of avoiding Governmental help. Just, just not. That's not a political statement. That's just true. So the point is, what's the, what, what, what's the call? What's the call here? So are we to live in this perpetual guilt and mutual suspicion uh, and condemnation? I think a clue... In answering this is the criticism that Jesus himself received. Jesus was constantly criticized for what? Partying with sinners. The Bible, and, and, and I'd recommend this book because it, it is not a get-out-of-jail ticket. It is just... Wonderful thinking about this. The Good of Affluence, Seeking God in a Culture of Wealth by John Schneider. Excellent book, deep book. And the point is that he makes this contextual statement. The Bible relates that God's desire 
is to bless his people. Is to, for them to be delighted in him and in the blessings that he gives. The concept of delight is very deep. And I had not really thought about it till I, till I read this book and, and heard his biblical exegesis on it. But I certainly knew that the sermons in Deuteronomy were shot through with, I want to bless you. I want to bless your socks off. It's not a prosperity gospel thing. It's, I want you to be, and the, 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 uh, the deep okayness concept that Todd was talking about, I want you to be deeply okay. That's what God is talking about. I'm having a senior moment. What term goes with that definition? Yeah, shalom, of course. Shalom, this peace, this peace that ultimately passes any understanding because it, it pervades even when we don't have physical goodness, so to speak. We still have deep okayness. And that's delightful. That is always portrayed as something that is great. It is good. It's important. It's what God intended. So, what is Jesus doing in these parties that are being criticized? I think we get sometimes false pictures. I think we sometimes build up false pictures in our mind. Jesus is building disciples. These are people who have invited him to come. The invitation of Christ for us and for them is what? It's a response of a, repent, of a repentant heart. Where did he begin his ministry saying? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. And that was good news. Does that, does that ring true? I think it does. So he's around the table training these folks. He's around the table showing them what the righteous king looks like. He's around the table correcting their understanding. He did it more intensely with the scribes and Pharisees, but he's doing it with them. That's the deal. He came for them. And we talked about what is that good news. The good news is the, is the news that God himself has taken upon himself the deserved fate of mankind. But the second part of the good news is, and he gives us the Holy Spirit to write this deep okayness on our heart. And the deep okayness is contained, an essential element of it is contained in this law, which, and let's think about Romans 1. Romans 1 is this accusation against everybody. Nobody's got an excuse that they can't know that they are a sinner. Not anybody. Nobody. But then Paul talks about the law making sin exceedingly sinful. The law being a curse 
in the sense that it, what we see in our fallenness is enough to condemn us, and we have a fairly clear understanding in certain essential areas. But what the law does is because of our, we, our, our code is cracked, our processors are not, are not operating at their, at their full potential, what the law does is it expands what? Our knowledge of righteousness. This is 2 Timothy 3.15. It's all scriptures inspired of God and is profitable for reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness so that we can be furnished to every good work. And every good work is not a legalistic thing. Every good work is a delightful thing. Does that make sense? It seems to me that God's principles of social justice, beginning with this idea of moral proximity, that we have an ultimate responsibility. Remember the... the, the parable or the story may have been a, an actual recounting of a story of Lazarus and the, and, the poor, and the poor man, I mean, and the rich man. The rich man knew his name. The rich man knew his name. He was not a faceless member of the community. He was not somebody far across the seas. He knew his name. How did he know his name? Might he have been of his tribe? In effect, an extended family member? I don't know. We don't know, but he did. And he walked past him digging in the garbage with dogs licking his wounds, and he goes in and eats sumptuously. That's moral proximity ignored, and that's what, that's what Scripture condemns. We have a high degree of moral proximity now to Winyo, Kenya. We probably each individually have a high level of moral proximity to a whole lot of poor people. Both, both people who might for a temporary period be physically poor, though that is less likely for us, but we are around a lot of poor people, spiritually. People who will not end up looking back with delight on what God has done for them. It makes us weep. It looks good right now. If sin wasn't fun, nobody would do it. But it's got those wages that we've talked about. So God's principles of social justice seem to me to have three component parts. First, there's a edges of the field Allocation. The edges of the field is not an insignificant thing. Edges of the field was, was estimated to be between 15 and 20 percent of the total planted area of a field made available to the poor and to the assimilating alien. So the edges of the field allocation of resources to the affiliated people of God. Both the native born, in Israel that would have been the native born and that would have been those identifying with Israel as sojourners. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Who can exercise self-responsibility. 
They're called to, here it is, come and take it. Think through what that means. How many crops would you normally gather in a climate like Israel's? Probably a, a, a couple, right? So twice a year. Now, think of this. Each crop represents one half of the agricultural output of the entire nation available for gleaning. It, it, that, that percentage is available. That wasn't furnishing a single meal. That couldn't be left in the field. Because this wasn't just grain, this was grapes, this was other, other commodities. So what are they being called to do? They're being called to harvest, and they're harvesting, in effect, their semi-annual allotment of God's blessings on the nation. That's hard work. It also requires, and we, the scholars believe, that the storehouses that were in the communities that, that the Levites were responsible for was where that might be kept, because these are propertyless People in many cases, well, in some cases they're not. They're the poor of Israel. They are not propertyless people. And think through this. These, these feasts that they went to and were to take sacrifices to, now they could monetize those sacrifices. In other words, they could, they could, they could sell cows and bring the money, in effect. Think about how expensive that was. Also, think about the fact that Israel isn't a big place, right? It's that little strip. We've all seen the maps because it's getting talked about all the time right now. It's not a big place, and you had 12 allotments, right? 12 allotments. And those families would grow. What was, the, what was the tithe on? The tithe was on the agricultural increase. Well, why was that? Because as those families grew, they couldn't all farm. There wasn't enough ground there for everybody to productively farm a plot. So what would happen? Some of them moved to towns. They'd move to towns and they would develop networks of trade. It's probably how Jewish butchers, a classic uh, kind of, um, you know, what, what do I want to, what am I looking for? Uh, uh, well, standard kind of view of, you know, one of these things that we sort of, you know, place Jews in this context, you know, kosher meat and this and that and the other. So, you know, you've got these. You've got these trades in the towns that develop simply, among other reasons, because there's not enough ground to plant. And there are networks there. And that's part of the way this whole process of bringing the sacrifices to Jerusalem worked. And the, there were these reciprocal arrangements along the way. If I'm Dan, the tribe of Dan, I'm way up in the corner. That's a long, stinking way to Jerusalem. That's where we get back into equity or equality. <laughs> it is an unequal deal to have to travel to Jerusalem from Dan versus traveling from Benjamin. Exactly. 
So you've got these reciprocal relationships that are developed. So they've got, we've got this edges of the field allocation and all the related ideas that come around that. We've got non-interest loans. That was the primary way of doing charity. You had the able poor that were, set, were harvesting a semi-annual allotment twice a year. And then otherwise, generally speaking, it was short-term loans at no interest. The biblical command is very explicit. If they are members of the household of faith and they have fallen on hard, hard times, they are poor, then you loan at no interest with no expectation of return. But it is a loan. A loan does create, again, God is into reciprocity here. It creates a reciprocal responsibility. They were supposed to repay the loan. There might be circumstances that kept them from doing it, but they were supposed to do it. Okay? Or indentured servitude. I go to work with you, not for wages, but for room and board. For a set period of time, not to exceed six years. Now, this whole jubilee principle, and by the way, in that seventh year, there was no increase from the land, by the way. Interestingly enough, when we think about tithes and offerings, there was no increase from the land in the seventh year because you weren't supposed to do anything with the land on the seventh year. You were tithing the increase, not the capital. The increase, that's another thing that I haven't often thought through. But the point is, the flip side of the jubilee, which is commonly used as a principle of redistribution, and biblical scholarship has pretty much now put that to, to rest, the point is that the flip side of jubilee is a return to personal responsibility. I'd never thought about that. I'd never thought about the fact that for some people, why would they, they had an allotment. They had an allotment as part of the tribe. They sold themselves into indentured servitude. They are being kept. Now they've got, a, they've got responsibilities to their master in that situation. But they are not fully self-responsible. Part of what is happening here is a teaching relationship. The less able person who either recognizes that they're less able or tried their hand and failed, and they say, I'm going to indenture myself to John Carr because John Carr knows what he's doing. And I get for six years not just to know that I'll have a roof over my head and food in my stomach and clothing to wear, but I also get to watch John Carr operate for six years. That's blessing. Now, that's part of equipping. Now I'm equipped. I can be given, was to be given then the tools because my former tools that I gave up might be 
worn out. I'm to be given the tools to go out and do my thing again. Does that make sense? Not something that I had thought about a lot. But it is really true. The law talks about subsistence aid clearly in temporary terms. Because the idea is there will be no poor among you. Certainly not poor that are able. The poor that are able, you're to equip in various ways. The poor that are able, you are to allow to be part of your harvest. The poor that are able, you are allowed to, to allow to become indentured for the purpose of, in effect, in effect management training, among other things. But there would be people who would fall on hard times. And then there would be what? There would be strangers. There would be strangers who are coming to Israel. Now there are two groups of strangers. There there are two words, words that are used. Actually, four words. They're connected words. The word for sojourner. Who would be assimilating or affiliating aliens are the words ger and toshav. And I am butchering that, I know, but Taz isn't here and Lance isn't here, so I can get away with it. Uh, and then the other word is foreigner, which is nekhar or czar. These are two distinct, two distinct sets of terminologies. What you essentially have is assimilators, people who are moving to Israel and affiliating with Israel. They are proselytes, if you want to think of them that way. And then you've got, and I don't mean this in a negative term, you have opportunists. You have people with foreign loyalties who are coming to Israel for the purpose of trade. They're business people or their laborers. There were foreign laborers in the building of the temple, right? He had skilled craftsmen that were being pulled into that process from places other than Israel in certain instances. The point is, these are people who their loyalty is to their homeland. They don't consider Israel their homeland. We have a lot of biblical example for this. This is what happens when we have 30 minutes. Darn it. Um, How are we going to do this? I'm going to stop there. There's there's no possibility. We will take up there. I will not go back and replow the ground that we've already covered, okay? Uh, my goal is that for, in terms of the core dots that we said we were going to try to talk about, let's talk about the dots, and then, and then we'll trust the Spirit of God to help us connect those dots, both in terms of discussion among ourselves, you know, reading, etc. But we'll talk more about this. But keep that in your mind. There are two groups, two groups of people who are drawn to, who are supposed to be drawn to this 
kingdom of justice. Folks who said, that's better than where I've been. I'm going there. And those that said, that's a great place to do business or to ply my trade. Okay? And we'll take that up next week. Y'all have any questions? We, we got a minute or two before the kids get out, but not enough time to go through this stuff. Any, any thoughts that are raised by this? Yeah, Gail. We're going to talk about that. that. That's a part of this whole strangers and aliens thing that we will talk about. Right. So how do you police it, in effect? Uh, well, exactly. Exactly. Well, we'll talk about that because that, that does come into play here in this whole realm of aliens because aliens are one of those eligible populations. The sojourners, as they're called. Anything else? Deborah? Oh, yeah. And you'd like to do them all in a lot of ways. Yeah. Oh, no. And guilt is different from struggle. You know, compassion means struggling with. So guilt is different from, obviously different from compassion. So the point is not to say, let's blithely, hey, you've got your get-out-of-jail card, everything's good, it has, you know, well, you've still got to struggle with what's your moral proximity. The Lord may lay something on your heart about somebody you don't even know. Well, now you've got moral proximity. But you don't necessarily have moral proximity because Ron Sider says you do or because the Pope says you do or because, you know what I'm saying? It's, 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 it's a... Right. Right. Well, and there, we, and we, we get into this in this whole realm, there the issue is sustain and equip. There are two, two elements. Sustain, I may have a call to send to, and, and I do need to be careful, but I may have a call to send to an intermediary relief agency. But I want that intermediary, I would far rather send that kind of money to Samaritan's Purse or to, I mean, there's certain ones that I feel more confident about because I've, I've delved into it more. Right. You know, so we do have a responsibility to be careful in that sense. But there we're still at a, you know, we're at a, a remove 
from those folks who were helping. We will not know their name like that rich man knew Lazarus's. Uh, but the Lord may put a call on our heart. The question is, who's putting the call to some degree? Is Satan putting the call or is the Lord putting the call? Because Satan is the accuser of the brethren, right? That's what he loves. He loves. So there's a, there's a balance here. And, and, and it's a balance that is not to be endured. It is to be delighted in. It is our, it is our blessing to be able to bless others. But it's our responsibility in that blessing, and all those blessings came with responsibilities, by the way. It's our responsibility within that blessing to do it in a way that brings glory to God. And I think maybe at the end of the day, that's what we look at is what happens on the backside of this deal. Is there glory being brought to God? Because Jesus was very quick to recognize when glory wasn't being brought to God when he's feeding 5,000 people. And now they're following him around so they can get fed over and over and over again. 